Periodically, I like to begin uh, my messages with a little quiz, and uh, so today is is no different. Uh, my my quiz this morning actually has seven answers, and I, I trust that all of you will know some of the answers. And I think together we will come up with all seven of these answers. And you know what? I'm going to try something here. Let's see. Okay, here we go. We got it. Um, here we go. Here's my question: When Jesus was on the cross. He made seven statements. So what were they? What were the seven statements upon the cross? Uh, Thatcher, let's go one by one. What are the statements? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? All right, next one. How about raise hands? That would be really good. Who else knows another one? Yeah, go ahead, Jonathan. Uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Good job. All right, who else wants to venture a, a, a try here? I think, I think we know. Okay, yeah, kids. Cora. I thirst or something. No, he just says I thirst. He didn't add the or something, but that was good. Uh, who else? Who else wants to go? Kids would be great. So we got any other kids in here? If not, uh, we can have old kids too. Okay, Tim Iverson. Okay, that's perfect kid. What do you got? Take care of my mother or more properly... Women, behold your son. Right? Good. All right. We got three more. What else we got? It is finished. Bang, right there, that one. All right, what about another one? Two more. This is what starts getting tough, right? You know them all, but it's kind of like, today you will be with me in paradise. Good. We got one more. Uh, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Right, so well done, well done, well done. That's an easy quiz, uh, I trust. And so, what we're going to do just over the next, um, let's see, this Sunday and next Sunday, and then uh, Good Friday service. By the way, we have a Good Friday service, um, six thirty to seven thirty on that Friday. Um, if you want to come, I would just encourage you to do that. Uh, we're going to look at these seven statements. So we're going to tackle six today. Or three today, rather, three next Sunday, and then we're just going to focus on one for our Good Friday service. Uh, the, the, my message is entitled, right, Words from the Cross. Part one is my message today, and my message next week, it's going to be part two, and then uh, part three of Good Friday. Um, but this morning, what I want to do in terms of taking these statements, I want to take them from the book of Luke, so you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, as, as I do the same thing. Um, just we're going to be looking just at the last words that Jesus says in this chapter. And, and while you're turning there, I just want you to think about last words of people. I've always been interested for some reason, what is the last words that people say just as they think about their life is winding down and what's the, what's the most important thing or the most impactful thing on their minds. I just compiled a few last words of some things that people said. Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, was very proud in his accomplishment. He said, if if I found Rome, I found Rome of clay, and I leave it to you of marble. Just speaking about how much he had done for Rome. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci also, the great Renaissance man who's probably more creative and more artistic, perhaps arguably, than anyone on the, on the earth. It's interesting, he thought about his great accomplishments, and he said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. in humility there in some regards, but just seeing how great God is, 
All the great art of Michelangelo did not face up to that. Some die in despair. Uh, Jane Austen, the novelist, said, I want nothing but death. Just let me die. Uh, Ludwig von Beethoven, the great composer, said, Friends applaud. The comedy is over. Vincent van Gogh, the post-impressionist painter, said, The sadness will last forever. Some die with humor. W.C. Fields, the comedian, was reading the Bible on his deathbed, and someone asked him, what? Like, why are you reading the Bible? And he said, um, I'm looking for loopholes. That's what he said. Groucho Marx, in his deathbed, said, this is no way to live. It's humorous. Some die with Christian hope, and these are the most encouraging. David Brainerd, if you know, he died at age 29, a great missionary zeal. He died in Jonathan Edwards' home, and it's only because of that circumstance we know him because his diary then was sent to the publisher. David Brainerd said this, I'm going into eternity, and it is sweet to me to think of eternity. The endlessness of it makes it sweet But oh, what shall I say of the future of the wicked? The thought is too dreadful. There's Christian hope for him and and despair for those who are not there. Richard Baxter, the great pastor, wrote, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. Susanna Wesley, famed mother of the Wesley brothers and 17 other children, something like that. He said, children, when I am gone, sing a song of praise to God just to keep things in perspective. Well, with the last words of Jesus, as, as He said them while He was on the cross, they really are, are hope for us. And I, and I hope, just even as we go over these, these seven words from the cross, that they would impact us, give us hope and desire even to know and trust in Christ in greater ways than ever before. So let's look at the first of the last of Jesus' words. Here it is, Luke Chapter 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, it's the context of these words that really make this most remarkable. I mean, just think about everything that Jesus went through to get to this point. First of all, he was betrayed by one of his disciples. Judas had left the pack at some point, and Luke chapter 22, verse 4 says he went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus, and, and they offered him some money, and so... He said, yes, that's good. They shook hands and the deal was done. And then after Jesus had been praying in the garden, um, Judas was leading a crowd of people to arrest Jesus. And Judas neared Jesus and they, they agreed. They said, right, the one I kiss will be the one to arrest. It was a sign. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 44, he even said, okay, guys, the one I kiss, seize him. Lead him away under guard. And Jesus knew what Judas was doing and even asked him. You look there in verse 48 of chapter 22. Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's treason. Jesus spent three years with this man. And yet he's willing just to turn on him for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus felt the pain of the betrayal that's David felt earlier in Psalm 55. Psalm 55 verse 24 says, It is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from it. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, 
My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. Just, you, you, you see, like, it's one thing just to be betrayed or, or whatever, and, and an enemy does it, but it's when one of your closest friends does it. That's what's so difficult. The unique betrayal of Judas. Well, not only was Jesus betrayed by a close friend, he was also abandoned by his closest friends. And when Jesus was arrested, most of his disciples abandoned him. And Jesus knew that would be the case. He knew that Zechariah 13, verse 7 said, Strike the shepherd and the, the sheep of the flock will scatter. But do you remember what Peter said before he was arrested? And this kind of added pain to it. He said, he said no, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you denied me three times that you know me. Sure enough, it took place. I think the best thing to do to set the context of Father, forgive them for they know not what they do comes in Luke chapter 22, 54 and following. Just want to read that. You can follow along if you just turn back a page. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Peter said, Man, I'm not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus could have wept bitterly at that moment as well. At the betrayal, the abandonment of his friends. In many ways, it would have been better if Peter had not said anything. But he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. The pain of abandonment would have been less. But just because of that, just the deep pain from Judas and from Peter, but also just even through his trials. That's leading up to his point on the cross. He was falsely accused on the, uh, in these trials. I mean, the whole deal with his trials was a, a kangaroo court of those who hated him. The religious leaders wanted him dead, and so they did everything they could to try to bring up false witnesses to find any sort of charge against him. And, and when they found just a sliver of a charge, they brought him before Pilate and said, this man deserves not to, to live anymore. He makes himself to be a king. And <clears throat> Pilate said, I don't find anything wrong with him. And even when he said to the crowds, he said, I find no guilt in this man. It was not enough. And then the summary comes in Luke chapter 23, 13 and following. We read this. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who's misleading people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving his death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. They wanted a murderer rather than Jesus. And Pilate answered them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! And a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. 
And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. There he was. He's innocent. He doesn't deserve death. And just, right, there's this, 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 this judge even who's trying to be right with Jesus. And the crowd hated him so much they wanted him to be crucified. So here was the context of the statement here. Betrayed by Judas, abandoned by his disciples, falsely accused by the authorities. And if anyone had reason to be bitter, it was Jesus. And yet he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, so the question here is, who's the them? And certainly I think it's probably directed towards the Roman soldiers, who perhaps at that moment were nailing his hands and his feet to the cross. Like maybe that's the way that he shouted out to just relieve the pain. Father, forgive them! Forgive them! It's the pain of the, of the nails going into his hands and it's these who are lifting him up. So maybe it's once he was lifted up on the cross, looking down, seeing what he'd done. Certainly he's talking about the, the soldiers. In fact, even if you look at verse 34, it says they were the one that cast lots to divide his garments. These are the, the close reference there to the them they were standing there watching him die. So it's to them, certainly, that he's praying. But I think his prayer probably goes beyond that. Because Jesus said that the ground of his prayer was this. Forgive them for, because they know not what they do. The soldiers didn't know what they were doing. And many that day didn't know what they were doing. Judas did not know what he was doing. Judas didn't grasp what he was doing in betraying the Son of God. When he found out... He gave the money, those 30 pieces of silver, back to the, the chief priests and went and hanged himself. He didn't know. Any. Peter didn't really fully grasp what he was doing, abandoning Jesus. When he fully understood, then he went away and wept bitterly. Those in authority didn't know what they were doing either. Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 2.8, None of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. These are the rulers. They didn't understand. And so, Jesus prays to His Heavenly Father, forgiveness upon those who didn't understand. Who were ignorant of their sins. Look at verse 35, and the people stood by, watching by, but the rulers scoffed at Him, saying, He saved others, let Him save Himself. If He is the Christ, His chosen one. Verse 36 Even the soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that said, this is king of the Jews. So even they're they're mocking at him. They didn't know. They didn't understand. And Jesus is saying, forgive them, Father. Now, they didn't experience forgiveness because they they needed to ask God. And God needed to have this transaction. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is is seeking, right? A wrong has been done. Yes, a wrong has been done. I'm, I'm seeking that and God granting that. So these people weren't Offering that, of course, forgiveness wasn't there for many, but it was the heart of Jesus. It's really a great point of application for us. Here he is willing to forgive even in the most trying of circumstances. The pain of the cross, after such wrong done against him, still was his heart to forgive. Speaks application to us too, right? When hurt has been done to us, The hurt wasn't greater than the hurt to Jesus of abandonment and crucifixion at the cross. To extend that desire for forgiveness. Isn't it amazing, right? The more you think about this, the more amazing it becomes. At the very moment that Jesus was offering atonement for sin, 
he was pleading application for his atonement right then and there. As forgiveness comes only through the cross. He was praying to the Father that his current suffering would turn out for the forgiveness of those who are inflicting the suffering. That is, that the sacrificial lamb was at the same time the high priest who was pleading to the throne of God on the behalf of his blood that he's pouring out right then at that very moment. As one man said, that Jesus would pray for them as he hung on the cross was one of the most powerful images in all of the Gospels. And I just say none is beyond the mercy of Christ. Remember the prodigal son? He sinned greatly against his father, squandering his wealth with sinful living, and even the father was willing to bring him back. Even eager to see him back, looking for far off, and then running, right? Casting all dignity aside, running after his son. And so it is with Jesus. <laughs> Literally, his arms on the cross are open wide. We couldn't hug anyone who came, but, but he was open wide for those who come upon him. And if, if, if you doubt that his arms are open wide, simply look to his words upon the cross. He's ready and willing to forgive. He's desirous to forgive those who are crucifying him, those who are mocking him, those who are wronging him, those who are deserting him, those who are betraying him. And certainly, I think your sins will fall into one of those categories as well. So run to Christ with open arms. He's ready to forgive. Well, another application here is that Jesus even was praying for his enemies. I trust you remember that Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I love the fact about Jesus here is that he's not being a hypocrite. He modeled what he taught right here, praying for his enemies. So if you have enemies, just encourage you to follow the path of Jesus and pray for them. Ivan, I heard a podcast recently of a man talking about forgiveness. And one of the things he said is that he was bound up just in this, in this bitterness. And he found that one of the things that really released him is he just prayed for his enemies. He just prayed for his He didn't tell his enemies he was praying for them. He wasn't making a big show about it, but he just prayed for his enemies. So if you have enemies, I just encourage you, right? Follow in the path of Jesus and pray for them. You have a Savior who is willing to save all who come to Him. Whether it's you, it's your enemies, pray as Jesus prayed. There's a word from the cross, the word of forgiveness. Well, here's the second word. It's a word of salvation. Today you will be with me in paradise. It comes in verse 43, um, but I, I want to step back, even back to verse 32, because it sets the context. And, and two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So there's a picture, right? Jesus in the middle, one on the right, one on the left. And then, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged, who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others rebuked him saying, but the other one, the, on the one side, he says, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, turning to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is a word of grace, is it not? 
A word of grace. Here's a criminal dying for his crime. Within hours, he'd be dead. Unable to do anything. He couldn't give anything to Jesus. He couldn't bow down to Jesus. He couldn't do anything for Jesus. He couldn't be baptized. He couldn't go to church. He couldn't go to prayer meeting. Couldn't go to small group. Couldn't read his Bible. His arms were stretched out, literally unable to move. Bound. Right? There's only one thing he could move. His mouth. And his mouth became the agent of his salvation. He couldn't walk. He couldn't touch Jesus. Maybe to see some experience some healing power to go through his body. But all he could do was speak, and that's what he did. He just cried out to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus heard his prayer request. Simply said, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, paradise isn't a word that's often used in the Bible. In fact, it's only used three times in the New Testament. Um, but it represents a, a, a pleasant place, like a park or garden. Um, this word is used often in the Old Testament, but especially it's used to describe the Garden of Eden. It's the garden word, is the paradise. That perfect place that God created for Adam and Eve. They could live there without a care in the world. Succulent fruit available in all the trees. They could walk, they had fellowship with God. It was, it was a perfect place. It was paradise. And this is a place to which Jesus says, you'll be with me today in that place. It's words used in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. It's the place where the tree of life is. And we know that life is here on earth, but it's nothing like life where the tree of life is. So I want you to think about your own paradise. Where's your paradise? I know that Yvonne and I have two different paradises. Um, Ivana said to our children before, like, if I, if I get old and I can't remember anything, there's this bench in Monterey. Is that where the bench is? County Line Beach. Okay, and that's in L.A. The County Line Beach, there's this bench there. And she said, when I'm losing my mind, I can't remember anything. You guys, you just bring me there and you put me right there on that bench. I don't know what's going on, but that is my paradise. I look and I see the ocean. I hear the waves crashing. I feel the wind going through my hair. Mine's different, Okay. Um, when I'm going old and senile and everything, I want you to take me to a small lake in Wisconsin someplace. And I want to, there's a beach there and all's quiet around and where the waves aren't crashing in, they're just going lap, lap, lap. That's my paradise. Your paradise might be something different. Maybe it's um, a cabin in the woods where nobody's around, where the trees are just rocking back slowly in the wind and the birds are chirping happily. Maybe it's on top of a mountain. We're on top of the world and you can see for miles around. Maybe that's your paradise. What's the temperature of your paradise? 75? 80 degrees? What's in your hand? Maybe a cup of coffee perhaps? Maybe a, a tropical smoothie. Maybe some southern sweet tea. And who's with you in your paradise? Are you alone? Your spouse? Your family? Now, all these places, as, as serene and idyllic as they may be, it's nothing like the paradise of God that will far exceed your earthly dreams. 
And I think that Jesus intentionally used this word paradise with this criminal. Because this man was going through hell on earth. The, the torture and pain of the cross is about as worse as it gets here upon the earth. Like Jesus, he too was nailed on the cross, painful wounds in his hands and feet. Like Jesus, he was dying a painful death, slowly suffocating. I've, I've described this to you before as drowning slowly is how they died. You're underwater, like you can't, can't quite breathe. And then all of a sudden, and you got a little breath, and then you go through it again. You're like almost drowning. And, and it's hurting every breath you take. You're getting exhausted in your arms. You, every time you pull yourself up for a breath, it's hurting. It's hell on earth. The, the Romans designed it that way. And Jesus promises, by the end of this day, all this pain will be gone. You'll be with me in paradise. The tree of life will be there in the garden. The river of the water of life will be there. All grows well. It's beautiful. The fruit is awesome. It's going to be a great place. And think of the contrast with this criminal. Hours before his death, he'd been on death row, anticipating his death. Days before, he had had a trial Right? that had sentenced him to this unpleasant prison sentence for his crime, spending the time in this awful prison. Prisons then are nothing like prisons now. Not clean, not serene. They were dungy. They were awful places. Sewage all around, the smells, the rats, the vermin, the lice. That's where he was. And maybe it was somewhat of a relief to be out in the fresh air. He was on his way to the eternal place of suffering. And there, in God's sovereignty, on the cross right next to him, was the Savior of the world. Nothing else could save him. Nobody else could save him except, except Jesus. And, and he was there. And I love how Philip Ryken describes the man in the scene. He says this, The thief on the cross had to be the luckiest man alive. He was nothing more than a low-life criminal, a loser. He'd committed a crime, and he was convicted for it, and he was crucified for it. So he had no future. He was going nowhere, or worse, he was going to hell. And yet, of all the criminals, on all the crosses, on all the hills in the Roman Empire, he was crucified next to Jesus Christ. Just before he died, just before he plunged into the abyss of eternity, at the last possible instant, he received the gift of eternal life. If he had died on any other cross, at any other time, in any other place, he would have been forgotten forever. But he did not die on any other cross, at any other time, in any other place. He died at the place of the skull outside Jerusalem on a cross right next to the cross that Jesus died on. But he died on, because he died on that cross, he was able to ask for eternal life and hear the beautiful words that Jesus spoke from the cross. I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He, he not only heard those words, he went to heaven that very day and has been there ever since. And then Riken brings the appeal. He says, if that sounds pretty lucky, you can be lucky as well. That penitent thief did not get anything from Jesus that you cannot get from him. You can meet Jesus at the cross the same way he did. You do not even have to be crucified for your troubles. But you need to do what this criminal did. Right? And this criminal, first of all, he acknowledged his own sin. 
Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This criminal knew his place. He knew that he was receiving a just penalty for his sin, or as as he says it, right, the due reward of, of our deeds. But this is the first step of coming to Christ. First step of experiencing paradise is to acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your standing under the just judgment of God that you too deserve death. The wages of sin is death. And that's what the criminal was doing. He was acknowledging his sin and affirming that his judgment is just. I'm on this cross justly. And you likewise need to say, yes, I am condemned to hell justly. Second, the criminal saw in Jesus as the righteous king. Verse 41 again, and we indeed justly are suffering. We're receiving what's due reward of our deeds. But this man, he done nothing wrong. There's an affirmation, the fact that he, he was innocent. And this criminal noticed how, how different Jesus was than, than the other one on the cross. I mean, both were suffering the, the due penalty for the crimes, and he as well, but he discerned that this one in the, in the middle had done nothing wrong. Now, we don't know how he discerned this. There may have been some discussion down below. We know that some of the women disciples of Jesus were, were off. Maybe he had, had some conversations with there. We don't, we don't exactly know. But he saw the, the rulers scoff at him. He, he saw the soldiers mocking him. He saw the other criminal railing at him. And he saw Jesus not lashing back. He said, something is different about this man. And maybe this thief knew what James would later teach, that no mere human can tame the tongue, but the one who does not stumble in what he says is a perfect man. He said, oh, this is innocent. This is a perfect man. He's being railed against so much. And these crimes he's being railed against, those, those aren't crimes. He's suffering unjustly, and yet he's quiet. There's something different about this man. He's righteous. But he also recognized that Jesus was a king. Do you see the request? He said in verse 42, he said, and Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He acknowledged that Jesus was a king and that he would enter a kingdom someday. And he basically says, I want to, I want to come in as a, a servant of yours. I want to come in as a slave because you're the king. You're the sovereign one. And I want to come enter your kingdom. And again, we don't know how this criminal came to know that this man here was a, was a king. Maybe it's the discussion of those below the cross. Maybe it was the mocking of those. Look at verse 37. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Uh, Maybe it was the sign that that this criminal could read that said king of the Jews up there on his cross. The very sign the Jews hated and wanted Pilate to move down. Maybe that became the very message of salvation to this man as he realized that not only is this man sinless, but he's a king going to another kingdom. And I want to be with him when he goes to that kingdom. He put it all together. He trusted in Jesus. He had the power to save and said, you are the king. I submit to you. Just remember me, please. And thirdly, this criminal asked. Right? He not only acknowledged his own sin and, and who Jesus was as this righteous king, but he also pleaded. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The promise of Scripture is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It matters not how you call out and cry out. You can come like this criminal did. 
Remember me, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom. You can call out like the blind beggar did. Son of David, have mercy on me. You can cry out like the publican did in the parable. Have mercy upon me and have mercy on me, beating your breast. You can call out like the leper did to Jesus. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Just calling to God, calling to Christ, longing for some, some help, some forgiveness. Forgive me. Remember me, O oh Lord. How many times the psalmist cry out, Save me, O oh God. Save me, O God. Psalm 130, out of the depths, I cried to the Lord and He answered me. Just crying out. Have you? Have you cried to the Lord for your salvation? Have you acknowledged your sin, recognized Jesus, the righteous King, was able to save and, and cried out? That's what this word on the cross is all about. It's about salvation. It's the, the promise that Jesus gives. Today you will be with me in paradise. It gives us great hope. It shows us the true nature of salvation. That it's, it's not by works at all. There are people that go around and say, oh, you need to be baptized to be saved. <laughs> you don't. The baptism follows by obedience for sure. But there's nothing you do. It's by God's grace that we believe and trust in Christ and Christ alone. We can be saved just with our mouth. right? With your mouth you confess Jesus is Lord. In your heart you believe that God raised Him from the dead. And if those things are true, you will be saved. I love what J.C. Ryle, though, said about this passage. He said, one thief was saved so that no sinner might despair, but only one so that no sinner might presume, waiting until some last minute until you cry out to God for his salvation. You don't want to be the thief on the cross waiting any last minute. Today is a day of salvation. So, So don't despair. Jesus already received the worst of sinners, and yet don't presume deathbed conversions are no guarantee. Who knows what your heart would be like when you come to die? I mean, I have a friend who faced death. He turned all religious. He talked to me. It was in a neck brace, I remember that. But once his back was healed and his death was no longer, he went back to the ways of the world. So it is with many deathbed conversions, people cry out to God, and yet, if they'd been living longer, they'd they'd turn back. So don't presume, but don't despair. There's hope at the one criminal who was forgiven. All right, let's look at our last meeting this morning. We've seen a word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We've seen a word of salvation. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And then a third one, I'm just calling it a word of surrender. The best word I'd come up with, it's when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So let's read the context of these words. It comes in 46, but let's work at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, okay, let's, let's read this, it says, calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then, having said this, he breathed his last. You know, these words seem to indicate the very last words that Jesus spoke upon the cross. (laughs) Because that's that's how the the phrasing is, right? Having said this, once he said this, once he committed his spirit to the Lord, 
Seems like he passed away right after that. Now that's in contrast here in Luke towards these first two statements. When you put all the, the seven sayings of Jesus together, these first two were probably the first two that Jesus said. Just he had got some strength at that point. You know, he'd not faced the abandonment. He wasn't thirsty at that point or demanding his thirst. He wasn't dealing with his mother yet. He, it's probably the first two. And then whatever the others are, are coming, the first other four. And then this one is probably his last. Maybe the final word that Jesus said. But in his final word, Jesus demonstrates control over his own life. See, the, the life of Jesus wasn't taken away from him. Jesus willingly gave it. Two different things. Unlike sacrificial lambs who were taken out of the flock without their consent and sacrificed, Jesus went to the cross with His full consent. He said in John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. See, Jesus wasn't involved in some revolution gone bad. He wasn't captured as a result of some sting, secret sting operation. He wasn't caught in some crossfire. No, Jesus was in full control of his life and he laid down his life of his own accord. And, and I just I see that in here. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So here, here you go. Like, he accomplished his will. He accomplished everything. In fact, even right before this, he says, we'll look at next week, it is finished. He accomplished everything that God had for him to do, and then it was all done. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. See, Jesus was the willing sacrifice that willingly came, demonstrating his, his love, I do believe. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I love how saturated Jesus was with the Bible. Boy, the more you know the Old Testament, the better you know the Old Testament, the more you realize how well Jesus knew the Old Testament. Psalm 31 and verse 5, David wrote, Into your hands I commit my spirit. <clears throat> Listen to the verses just before that. Psalm 31, 3 and 4. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. You are my refuge. And no doubt this was the attitude of Jesus. He entrusts his life to God as the, the rock and the fortress. And his words here from the cross is one of entrustment. So I put like word of a <clears throat> word of, of uh, surrender, right? Here's my soul. Here's my spirit. It's yours now, right? Because I'm, I'm off the earth, God. It is, it is yours, Father. Surrendering his life into the hands of his Father. Now I love what happens surrounding these verses, right? If we read in verse 45. That while the sun's light failed, right, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It's a, a great picture from other passages of the Bible. We know that this, this represents the dismantling of the Jewish system of sacrifice. When, when, this, when this veil that separated us from God and even separated the high priest from God, where he enters in that veil just once a year with, with, with blood. At first he offers sacrifice for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Like, like that's, that's the place the priest has to go on our behalf. But no longer do we need a human priest to enter into the holy place with blood for us because that veil has been torn and it's been opened to us. And one of the Gospels says it was torn from top to bottom. This, this curtain that was 20 feet tall and thick. Picture the Coronado. Right? The Coronado, the, the drapes go like this. <clears throat> Picture one of those drapes right in the middle just coming down. 
Because the work of Jesus had been finished on the cross. And after Jesus gave up his spirit, let's look after that. After having said this, he breathed his last. Now verse 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. One of the soldiers uh, around watching the crucifixion of Christ made an impact upon his life. He'd helped put Jesus to death. He saw the people scorning him. And mocking him. He, he understood the kangaroo court. And, and he saw Jesus quiet. He saw the darkness come down. He saw Jesus deal with grace with his mother. And yet all that took place. He said, surely this man was innocent. We have innocence projects today that seek to you know, take innocent people out of the jail systems. And praise God for that. After they die, after they're given the lethal injection, you can't bring them back. And that's what this man was saying. He was innocent. He should never have died. And look at the reaction of the crowds. They knew that something was amiss. The crowds, verse 48, that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Just a, well, something wrong happened. What was done was not right. And they're beating their breast in, in agony in some regards. In repentance perhaps. In sorrow. Like, what did we just see? <clears throat> and it made an impact, right? When the soldiers right, said this was wrong. And the crowds saw that it was wrong. But that's the very point. That yes, it was wrong. The greatest injustice in the world happened to Jesus. That we might not bear that, but he bore it for us. And I say the cross ought to make this same, the same impact upon our lives. That's what I'm hoping this series, whatever these three messages, the words of the cross, might, might make an impact upon us. So that his death might really just, just stir us, stir us afresh in the crucifixion of Christ. We're going to transition now to the the Lord's Supper, I'm thinking it's a perfect introduction, right, to that, just thinking about Christ upon the cross. Think about His death. You know, Isaiah 53 is a passage we go to often. We think about the, um, uh, the crucifix. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All His suffering was for us and for our iniquities. He died wrongfully that we might live wrongfully, if you will, right, so that God might be just in, in um, condemning Jesus. So he could justify us by saying my punishment has been poured out. I just want to read the very last verse of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 12. It says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. His soul is right there pouring it out, almost giving it right to the Father. And was numbered with the transgressors, a thief on each side of the cross. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isaiah 53, verse 12, kind of just wraps up this, all three of these sayings. Just right there, prophesied of Jesus hundreds of years before his death. He poured out his soul to death, numbered with the transgressors, 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Exactly what he did. Exactly what he does for us today. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So let's pray as we think about celebrating the supper again. Father, just through Lent, just thank you for this season in which we can celebrate your supper just every week. God, may it be rich in all of us. May it stir us afresh. God, with the glories of the cross of Christ. God, I just thank you for Jesus, his last words, and what they have to teach us even here this morning and next week and Good Friday, just how it will help us to focus upon Christ, that we might rejoice even more greatly in the in the resurrection. So, Father, I pray for all of us now as we think about celebrating the supper together. I pray you'd search our hearts, that we would search our hearts, we'd confess our sins as this thief on the cross did. He said, I'm dying justly. I deserve death. And I seek to be right with you in, in every way. So, Father, may we, may we trust you. May, may this be a time of, of fellowship, communion with you. You will in a special way as we eat and drink. Uh, the body that you told us to eat and the cup that you told us to drink. So be with us now as we sing and wait and eat. God, may it stir us to impact us to think of our Savior, whose name we pray. Amen.